Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John. And we begin our journey this morning through this wonderful book of the Bible. Now, whenever you begin a journey, it's always helpful to know like where you're going. Recently, our family made a trip from Illinois out to California, and it gives a we knew where we were going to go, and we knew that as we traveled from Illinois, we would go through the flat cornfields of Illinois, to the hilly cornfields of Iowa, to the sand fields of Nebraska, to the cattle ranges of Wyoming, into the barrenness of Utah, the salt flats of Utah, and the barrenness of Nevada, and then the beauty of California. So you enter in right into the Sierra Nevadas, some of the most beautiful places in the world, and with such a, a map and understanding, it helps to make the trip more enjoyable. And then furthermore, to understand where we're going helps, um, helps people to know what to expect. Like, for instance, we drove out to California this summertime. We, we told our children beforehand, actually it was that they're begging. They say, Dad, can we, Mom, can we just drive straight through? And so that's what we did with uh, very little stops. We drove our 30 hours to the uh, San Francisco area. And uh, with very few stops along the way. And it helped people's perspective, our kids' perspective, that they don't have to think, okay, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Because we're not there yet because we're a long ways away. And also that when we stop, they need to be quick about their bathroom breaks. And so they were, were quick about that. But it all helped to know where, where we were going. And my purpose this morning is to give us a, a roadmap of sorts in First John so you might know what to expect over the next couple months. Now, it's not an easy task because... 1 John is a really confusing book. Um, not because it's difficult to understand, mind you. 1 John is a, is a confusing book because he just goes around and around and around and around and comes back on themes and picks up themes and talks about things. And, and it's just, it, it defies outlining, in fact. I've read several commentaries that say that because you just can't, you can't put it in a box. It's as if John is kind of rambling. He's just going on and talking about what he's saying. So to use a travel illustration, it would be like starting Illinois and going to California, but not heading west, but instead heading east through Indiana, and then maybe down through Kentucky and Tennessee, and then maybe you think, okay, we're now west. Now he turns back north up through Virginia and West Virginia and up through uh, Pennsylvania and New York. And then you, you come back down through Michigan and Illinois and then up back again. And then you're out west through Canada. And then you come down, you're thinking you're going to make there, but kind of coming over east again, right, to Nevada and down through Arizona until finally coming into California. That's how, that's how John travels. He just kind of circles around everything. But in the end, we get from Illinois to California stopping at all the brown signs along the way, if you know what I mean. Um, and so likewise, John gets where he wants to go, but he does so in a, in a roundabout way. Well, this is what I want to do in my message this morning, is to, is to sort of give you a feel of First John by, by going in and out and, and up and down and around and just kind of picking out some things from First John that um, would kind of kind of show you what First John's about. I don't have an outline this morning because John, it's difficult to outline, so I figured, like, let me try to preach in the spirit of, of John this morning. In fact, you can even see John's style in the first couple of verses. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, we have seen it, 
and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now you can even see there that John begins a thought in verse 1 and then, and then in most of your translations in verse 2, there should be like, like some dashes, the beginning of verse 2 and the end of, of 2, because he starts in verse 1, he gets talking about manifesting the word of life, and then he goes and he talks about how the life was manifest, and, and we've seen it and testified to it. We're proclaiming to you this eternal life. And then he comes back and starts verse 3 with the same words he started verse 1 with. That which was from the, from the beginning. So he's just, he's kind of going back and forth and kind of around, but he eventually gets to, gets to his point of what he's doing. And, and there's maybe some difficulty of flow here in the first three verses, but there's, there's no confusion as to the meaning. What John says is that which was from the beginning. Now, that might be the beginning of creation, the beginning of Jesus' life. I think it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that, that which started with Jesus. Because all these things talks about John, how he, how he experienced Jesus. He saw him, he heard him, he touched him. I mean, after all, John was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was mending his nets there on the Sea of Galilee, and, and Jesus came up and said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And so he and his brother, along with Peter and Andrew, they, they dropped their nets, they left their boat, their father, and, and followed him. And for the next three years, John followed with Jesus very closely. I mean, as, as close as any friend would follow another friend, wherever Wherever Jesus went, there was John, and Jesus was leading him and teaching him and, and, um, and helping him to understand who he was. And so John experienced all these things. He saw Jesus heal the multitudes. He saw his compassion for the poor. He heard Jesus teaching the crowds. He was one of the three who was chosen to go up on the mountain and see Jesus transformed before them. It was Peter, James, and John. This is the same John. He saw it, the glory of Christ. He was one of the three privileged to go in and see that child raised from the dead, that, that little girl. And he was close enough to experience physical contact with Jesus. I'm sure that he, he touched him often. We, we don't have many instances where it says that John touched Jesus, but, but surely we know he did if two close friends are there, especially if they're guys. You know, they like to chest bump each other and high five and fist bump and all that kind of stuff. And, and I don't think they high fived and chest bumped back then, but I think they had some equivalent sort of things. That they, that they rejoiced in, that they, that they had. We do know that the Last Supper that Jesus washed John's feet. And we know that John was the one, you remember, was the reclining there at the table. His head was up against the breast of Jesus. And all he had to do was kind of move back a little bit and he would have physically touched Jesus. He was real as real could be. And what John experienced is he's proclaiming to us. In other words, that's the heart of the book. John is proclaiming a first-hand testimony of what he knows to be true about life and about eternity. Look at verse 2 again. He says, the life was made manifest. That is, Jesus was made manifest. Jesus appeared. He came among us. And we have seen it, right? We've seen him. We've seen that life in Jesus. And we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Catch those words. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus is eternal life. And, and His life was manifest and we saw it. And that's what John is saying. He says, we are proclaiming that to you. And, and along with all the other disciples, John was absolutely convinced in what he saw. 
this morning I'm going to bounce around a little bit, so if you can get your fingers ready. We're going to go to chapter 5, verse 20. We see that we know, he says, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. There, John says, listen, we know Jesus and we are convinced in Jesus and we know that He is the one that has eternal life. John says, I know it, I've seen it, I heard it, and I'm telling you, this is true. He's the Son of God. He's the true God. So believe in Him and trust in Him. And this is the burden of the book. That you might know that you believe. You might know you have eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 13. If there's any verse that I would, would banner all of 1 John over, it is this verse right here. Because it's one of the four purpose statements which John writes several times he says I'm writing this so that or I'm writing this because or I'm writing this you know for some reason and here is I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life the title of the message this morning the banner over the book of John is this do you have eternal life do you have eternal life it's a a question because there's some question in first john but ultimately i hope the the response is in the spirit of john do you have eternal life yes i know i have eternal life would be a response so if i say do you have eternal life i want you to say yes i know i have eternal life that's what john is is all about he wants you to know this he wants you to know that there's life beyond the grave that's what eternal life is right there's there's life that never ends and it's available to all who believe. And here we see in chapter 5, verse 13, the audience to whom this book is, is addressed. It's addressed to believers, those who trusted in Christ for eternal life. Look, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's not writing to the skeptics. He's not writing to people who don't believe. This isn't an evangelistic book. This is a book really for those in the church. It's a, it's a book for those who believe. John wants these people, he wants us to have assurance of our salvation, right? So that you may know you have eternal life. He's writing to believers that they may know and be assured and be convinced that they have eternal life. Without any doubts, without any false assurance, not any misunderstanding, but know that you have eternal life. Now here's where we see the difference between the book of John and the book of First John. The book of John is a decidedly evangelistic book. That is, that is written for the populace, is written for people outside of Christ and saying that, that I, I want you to believe in Jesus. The end of the Gospel of John, which Phil read for us this morning, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in His name. And then First John comes along and it says, I write to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's where the purpose of, of John is a little bit different than the, the first, first John. But through the book of John, John is all of the gospel of John. He's putting forth these signs of turning the water into wine or healing the official son or, or, or helping the, the paralyzed man who had been paralyzed for 38 years or feeding the 5,000, walking on the water or healing the blind man, raising Lazarus from the dead or rising himself from the dead. These are all signs that were written, John could have written a lot more, but these are signs that are written to aim towards us, knowing that Jesus and believing that Jesus is the Christ. 
and that by believing we might have life in his name. And through the Gospel of John, we hear the claims of Jesus. It's not just the miracles of Jesus, because he only includes like seven of them. But it's the names of Jesus, where, where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never hunger again. Or he says, I'm the light of the world. Or, or when he says, I'm the door, right? You've got to go through him to get to God. Or he says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the vine. All these sort of illustrations that, that Jesus used to speak about how I'm the Christ. I'm the one, so believe in him. And John picks up a lot of these same themes throughout, throughout 1 John that are, are prominent in the Gospel of John. Throughout, throughout just five chapters here, I, I don't know how many, I'm guessing maybe 20, 25 times, it mentions about the, the concept of abiding or dwelling in Jesus. Um, we, we see that over and over and over again, like chapter 4, verse 16. Might be as good a place, right? So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. There it is, just, just talking about communion with God. Remember when Jesus said, I am the true vine, you're the branches, and you must abide in me. Right? Abide, abide in Jesus like, like plant shoots. Abide in a a vine. That imagery he uses quite a bit. He uses the imagery about being born of God. About, you know, regeneration. Uh, That's used maybe 15 times. I I don't even know exactly how many many times it's used. But the idea of being born of God. uh, Like chapter 3. You know, a better place. Chapter 3, verse 9, right? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's born of God. And there you see God's abiding in us. We see us being different and changed, born of God. So much so that in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father's given us that we should be called children of God because we are born of God. <clears throat> That's true of every believer in Jesus. And of course, Jesus used that illustration when talking to Nicodemus about being born again. You must be born again. So that, that same imagery about going from darkness to light and being being born again, but darkness and life, it, light is a is a theme throughout First John as well. People walking in the light, chapter two, right, verse nine, says that right. Whoever says he's in the light hates his brothers in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going, because the darkness is blind his eyes. But in contrary, Jesus is is light. So there's light, darkness. Contrast. There is this death, life, and of course, light, 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 darkness. Right? I'm the light of the world. Right? You come to Jesus, you have the light. You know the truth. The truth will set you free because He's the one who, who gives light. He's the one that gives life. Um, so often, I mean, this is the whole idea about eternal life. Chapter five, verse thirteen. That that God is the one who who gives life. He He grants life to us. But if you if you don't love you. You're dying. So like, like, look at chapter 3, verse 12. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. This whole life and death theme. Everyone who hates his brother, verse 15, is a murderer. And you know that murderer has eternal life abiding in him. There you see that abiding theme. But you see life and death following after the ways of God. And so this is a, it's a contrast book. And, and none of these, it's difficult to just absolutize any of these, but you put them all together and you get a flavor of the, 
of the Godward life that genuinely has eternal life. That's what 1 John is about. You might say 1 John is a book about assurance. And maybe you're here today and, and have made some kind of commitment and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you don't really have that assurance of salvation. Or, or you aren't really convinced of things, or maybe there are doubts that come, or, or maybe you're just going through life, maybe you're going through kind of a down period in life, that there are, are doubts. And, and what John, First John is going to do is going to help give us assurance that yes, yes, I am a child of God. Yes, I know that I have eternal life. And, and First John will help assure you of your salvation. But there are also those, and I think First John is really good about this, people who think they have eternal life, but they don't. And, and they have a false assurance. And, um, and this book helps to expose the errors of, of their ways. And I'll just say this is so common today. I mean, how many people do you know who are self-professed Christians, and yet their life gives no testimony to following Jesus at all? They know little or nothing about following Jesus, though they would say they're a Christian. And oftentimes what happens is someone comes to faith or they, they believe or they, they pray some kind of prayer to God and then they, they trust like they are believers in Jesus because they prayed this prayer. Almost like, you know what, I'm, a, I'm an Illinois resident because I have my Illinois driver's license. Here it is. There's my driver's license, right? I prayed this prayer. I made that transaction. I got this card from God. And it's interesting that when you go into 1 John, in talking about assurance of salvation, talking about knowing you have eternal life, nowhere does it talk about a decision you made. Do you know you're a Christian? Yes, I made this decision long ago. But that's not how 1 John argues. 1 John argues, says, you professing to be a Christian? Yes, how do you know? Well, look at the ways that God is working in my life. Look at the way that I'm living. Look at the victory over sin that I'm having. Look at how I'm confessing my sin and seeking God. That's where you get assurance. You don't get assurance from some prayer that you prayed long ago. You get assurance from the life that you're living today. But there are many people today who, who are trusting in this, this prayer, this decision, where there's no heart for God. They don't follow in the ways of God. Rather, they follow their sinful, self-centered lives. And they, they call themselves Christians. Listen, if anything First John teaches us, it teaches us this, that simply to say you're a Christian doesn't mean anything. In fact, it might mean that you're a liar, is what it might mean. If you're not walking in the ways of God. And, and, and I know scores of people like this. Even people who regularly attend church, do the religious thing, speak well of Jesus in the Bible, yet live their lives that God doesn't matter. Lifestyles are anti-God. Worldview is anti-God. Their, their language is anti-God. Listen, people like that are not believers. I spoke with a man this week who talked about an experience he had with church. Some time ago. And uh, he told me that Sunday mornings had lots of energy and everybody's religious and crying out to God and doing their religious thing. But then, then throughout the week, they love their alcohol and they're getting smashed drunk and they're sinfully living. And then they come back again and do their religious thing. It's almost like they get the religious pill on Sunday, but it doesn't affect anything about their life. And, and John said, that's not true. I don't care how religious you are on Sunday. I don't care how much you say. In fact, we're going to see here through 1 John a lot of, if someone says this, but their life doesn't back it up, they're a liar, the truth is not in them. We're going to see that over and over and over again. 
And First John's going to help us to, to think about such people. Uh, and, and that's why First John would say things like in chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. And so why aren't we to love the world? It, it, it's clear because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. In other words, you love the world, you're gonna, are you going to partner up with the world and be with the world? Well, you'll go the way of the world, you're going to pass away with its desires. But see, it's the one who follows in the way of God who will abide forever. First John Chapter 2, verse 17. And chapter 3, verse 6 through 8. No one who abides in God keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. You see people is in sinful lifestyles. You say, how can you live in the sinful lifestyle when you keep on sinning when it says no one who abides in God lives that way? And then as if to, to shake these people, I was talking to Yvonne this morning about First John and how often he says, little children. He's just pleading with them. He's saying, little children. That's chapter 3, verse 7. Let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived about this matter. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. He is righteous. But verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So you, you, can't, you can't equate a Christian life with a, a continual sinning life. It just, doesn't, it just doesn't fit. That's why this man's church experience, no wonder he got a bad taste of church because it just didn't mesh. And so we, church family, we ought to be different. If we go through First John, First John might expose your own life that maybe you're one of those people. Acting good on Sunday mornings, and yet what's after that? Don't know a lot. I know of people who've come to Rock Valley Bible Church and not here before, but totally played the game on Sunday mornings. It's not happening elsewhere. As I found out more, as I knew more, it's like, oh, okay, now I understand. Right, but, but they're trying to get some kind of religious thing. Such is not the, the path of the, the people of God. Listen, if you believe in Jesus, you'll follow him. It's the message of 1 John. It's the path to, to assurance that Jesus is true in your life. And if He's true in your life, you may have eternal life and you may have assurance that you have that. But if He isn't true in your life, you may well have a false assurance. And 1 John, praise God, may be the very book that hope opens up. I'm not true. Even though it's written for those who, who um, believe that they may have eternal life, that they may know it, very well could do the task of opening up unbelief to saying, oh, I'm not that. And if that's you, I encourage you to, to come into the fold. You know, it's not unusual for church members to come to faith in Christ. That's not an unusual thing. I remember hearing one famous preacher talk about um, a church that he came to, and uh, when he came to it, I mean, it was just kind of a typical whatever church. He came, he starts preaching the word, he starts trying to lead biblically, he starts, starts putting things. He talked about how one of his deacons came to faith during a deacon's meeting. Just 
just as he began to hear the glories of Christ, as he, as he saw his own sin, and as he came to understand all that, this was new teaching to this guy because other pastors had been teaching other things. And he came in, he says, uh, came to faith. A leader of the church came to faith. So it can happen. Church people. And First John is trying to bring the truth upon our lives so that we might know we have eternal life. And if we don't, what a gift to expose that. So you say, I'm not in. And either you can say, I'm not in willingly, way better that than to think you're in only to find out that you're, you're not in. Well, several times in this book, we hear about false teachers, antichrists, and false prophets who have, who have come in and sought to, to pull people away. Chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So we often think of Antichrist and think that there's one Antichrist. right? Who's the Antichrist going to be? I always hear that. But John says in verse 18, many, many Antichrists have come. Meaning, what does Antichrist mean? Help me out, Drew. What does Antichrist mean? Anti means what? Against. What does Christ mean? The Messiah. You're against the Messiah. It's anybody who's against the Messiah is the Antichrist. You probably have a lot of Antichrist friends in your neighborhood, people you work with, people you rub up against. Many Antichrists. And, and these Antichrists have come and, and um, they have persuaded people away and some people from church have left. I mean, look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So in some regard, praise the Lord for Antichrists. Because they come in and when they leave, those who are not genuine go with them. Those who are genuine will stay. But verse 19 speaks about how they, how they go out. And they follow after the Antichrists. So they follow after their way rather than following the true ways of Christ. That's how best to understand it. That's how best to understand those in the assembly who get sucked away and no longer follow Christ at all or, or follow a different Jesus. And John longs that people aren't deceived. Look at chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And here's one of these purpose statements. Right? There's this, this world out there. These, these false teachers are coming in. They're trying to deceive you, but I'm writing to you. Don't be deceived. As we already read then, chapter 3, verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived about this. It's those who practice righteousness who are righteous. Instead, John would encourage us to test the teachings of these antichrists or these false prophets that come. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Right? So, you have, you have teachings out there. You have these spirits. Just don't go after everything. Just because someone stands up in church and teaches about Jesus doesn't mean that they're speaking the truth. Doesn't mean that we should follow them. We should test them. Just because there's a book written under the banner of Christianity doesn't mean it's true. We should test and see whether it's true or not. And he gives assurance just to, just to say that you have everything that it takes to know whether it's true or not. Chapter 2, verse 20. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. And how often is this verse used to, 
to abuse in spiritual leadership that says, I'm the anointed, I've been anointed, and I'm the anointed teacher. So listen to me. And John says, you've all been anointed, and you all have knowledge. Verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, because you know it, and because no lies are the truth, because you have this anointing. And he says down in 27, let the anointing that you heard from him, it abides in you, and you've no need to teach you. But it's his anointing teaches you about everything. It's true, it's not a lie, just as taught you abide in him, right? So you hear these things, you're equipped. You know, if you, if you have the Spirit of God in you, you have the anointing and you're fully equipped to understand and to know and to detect. But he says to test, test their teachings, right? Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, test the spirits. But he says not only test the teachings, but also we need to test our lives, we test our lives over and over and over again. He's going to put forth some tests for those who believe. And it's, it's going to go uh, in many different ways, many different forms. But I, to distill it down, I think there are really three big tests. First, there's the obedience test. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Here's the obedience test. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. If anyone says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Okay, let's think about these verses. You want to know if you have eternal life? One of the first tests to say is, are you obeying the Lord? Is that not what verse 3 says? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Because keeping God's commandments is a surefire way of knowing that you have come to know him. But if you aren't keeping his commandments, you don't know him. I don't care how much you profess to know him. If you're not keeping his commandments, you do not know him. A great example of this in the church is, is the homosexual issue. Because many liberal churches are open to homosexuals, homosexuality. Um, because the Bible is no longer the authority. It's a different authority. They say you come in. And so homosexuals come in and are are welcomed clearly in the fold of the church and are given good standing and are promoted. Some denominations even have bishops and leaders of denominations who are openly practicing homosexuals. Okay? Now, homosexuality is clear in the Bible is a sin. The Old Testament puts it forth. It's repeated in the New Testament. There's like zero doubt about this. And people may be kind and gracious. You, you probably know some homosexuals who are kind and gracious. I know some homosexuals who are kind and gracious. It's not, it's not about that. We should be kind and gracious to them for sure. Um, but they're not Christians if they stay in their homosexuality gladly. If they struggle with their homosexuality, that's one thing. That would be First John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If they, if they commit that sin and hate that sin and are, are seeking to get away from that and through toil and struggle and pain, that's one thing. But to say, here I stand and I delight and God loves this loving relationship, that's just not God's command. By this we know that we've come to know if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, as homosexual church leaders do, and do not keep His commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in Him. I don't care how much they profess. They're just not true. See, the Christian life isn't a, a sinless life. 
Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's not that we're, we're sinless. Or verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, his word is not in us. That's one of confessions, one of turning away. But to rejoice in sin is a totally different deal. And that's the obedience test. The obedient life will know a measure of obedience. A Christian life will know a measure of obedience to God. It's the obedience test. Next, the love test. The love test, chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. And then again, there's this, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this one, this one works like this. You, you want to ask, you want to know that you have eternal life? I simply ask you, do you love your brother? Because someone who hates his brother, I don't care whether they say I love God, I don't care the theology they put forth, you hate your brother, you're not in Christ. If anyone says I love God, hates his brother, he's a liar. He's a liar about loving God. He doesn't love God because if you can't love people, how can you love the invisible God? Now, when we talk about brother here, this is, this is important. I do believe that it has primary reference to fellow believers. Okay? It has, has reference to those who are, are rejoicing in Christ along with you. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. There it is. We've passed out of death into life because we love fellow Christians. We love fellow believers. So that's primarily what brothers are talking about here. And you can't hate your fellow Christian and profess to love God. Now, people may be hard to love. There's a lot of people hard to love. But you can't say, I love God and hate your brother. And by the way, there's no like middle ground like I tolerate my brother. I love God and I tolerate my love for my brother. No, it's, it's you. You either hate or love. And the call here of love is to, is to genuinely love. And the contrast, though, is of a physical brother, verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. There's talking about a, a physical brother. Of course, you know that Cain rose up and, and killed his brother. Now, before you get too comfortable that all your siblings are still alive, right? You, you're catching that, right? You haven't, you're not guilty because they're all alive, right? Before you get too comfortable, realize even that, that John puts the same standard that Jesus did, right? You've heard it said, right? Do not murder, but I say to you, do not be, what? Angry? Do you want to hate your brother? That's exactly where he's going. Look at verse 14, which I didn't finish. Whoever does not love abides in death. One of the, the characteristic qualities of a believer is that you will love. If you don't love, you'll abide in death. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him there's that eternal life thing there's that jesus concept about hating someone is like murdering them so maybe you didn't murder them physically but if you hate them you're not failing you're not passing the love test it's physical brothers i believe it's spiritual brothers 
Another test, the doctrinal test. We've seen the obedience test, the love test, now the doctrinal test. Look at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It talks about right after false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So here you have a doctrine test. In other words, if you believe that Jesus did not come in the flesh, you're not possessing eternal life. Because every, the Spirit of God, is the one that confesses Christ Jesus came in the flesh. And I I believe that the issue here is that if you don't believe Jesus came in the flesh, you're not believing the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus was, was fleshly. That's why I had... Phil read for us this morning about doubting Thomas who put his fingers in his side and touched and saw his, his hands, his wrists, because he was real. You could touch him. He ate fish. He ate breakfast after he was raised from the dead. He was, he was real. His resurrection body was real, and his earthly body was very real. Now, this might sound strange to our ears, but in the early centuries, there were people who doubted that Jesus really came in the flesh. They, many believe that he just appeared to be in the flesh. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 4. Um, people just say he was a spirit. That he was more of a ghost than a man. And, and John says, no, no, he was really in the flesh. And, and uh, in some measure this came because people knew that Jesus wasn't um, sinful. Chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So they knew that he was sinless, but mixed up in their... In their Roman Greek way of thinking, the flesh is evil, the spirit is good. If Jesus is totally spiritual, totally good, then he must be spiritual and not fleshly. Therefore, he didn't come in the flesh trying to reconcile this. And John says, I'll have none of it. Jesus was very fleshy. He was very human. He had substance. That's why he talked in chapter 1, verse 1, even about what we touched. We touched Jesus. But the sinlessness of Jesus wasn't the debate back then. It was more the humanity of Jesus. But the point is this. You must believe in the real Jesus. Because if you don't believe in the real Jesus, your Jesus is a figment of your imagination. So today the circles have flipped. Whereas back then they debated the humanity of Jesus. Today everyone who is intellectually honest, whatever in the world, will believe that Jesus was a real, a real person. I mean, certainly there'll be some who doubt that and things like that. But you pick up your major news outlets, you know, whatever, Time Magazine and all these defunct Newsweek. And they always, or Easter time, there's always a lot that talk about the physical Jesus. Who was the real Jesus? And, you know, the, the fact that he lived, that's no doubt. But what is in doubt today is the deity of Jesus, the sinlessness of Jesus. That's why these awful books are written, right, about the Da Vinci Code and things like that, that, that say Jesus was sinful, Because people say, yes, he was a man. He was really a man. He was a sinful man. The debate today is about whether he was really God. And and I think, total conjecture, okay, this is, but I think that had John written 1 John today, verse 2 would have sounded something more like this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is God is from God. Meaning that the battle today is not the fleshly battle. The battle today is the divinity battle. But same idea, same concept. If you don't believe that Jesus is the God-man, 
then you're not believing in the real Jesus. You, you've got some other kind of just human Jesus who has no power to save your life. That's a doctrinal test. You need to be believing in the, the right Jesus. And, and these are the sorts of questions that, that John puts forth toward us. Obedience, love, doctrine. Do you believe in the real Jesus? Are you obeying his commandments? And do you do so with a heart of love? Because a made-up Jesus is powerless. A sinful life is fruitless. And an unloving life is useless. So the question comes, do you have eternal life? How are you doing with these questions? Are you, are you delighting in obedience? I mean, one of the things I didn't talk about, it's not, it's not just, oh, yeah, I'm obeying God. It's obeying God with a delight. Chapter 5, verse 3, look there. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So, these commandments that we keep, it's not because, oh, I don't want to do that, but I'm going to because I'm going to obey God. No, it's that God changes our heart that we willingly obey out of delight. Are you delighting in your obedience? Are you, are you demonstrating your love? Chapter 3, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. God says, it, it is clear who are the children of God and the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. It's obvious. If you're not, if you're not loving your brother, if you're not delighting in God, you're not a child of God. If you're not practicing righteousness, you're not loving him. That's how it is. In other words, your love needs to be demonstrated. Are you trusting in the true Jesus? We looked at this verse before, but again, chapter 5, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and He's given us understanding that we might be in Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is the true God. He's the real one. Because anything other than the true Jesus is powerless to save. Now, Throughout this entire letter, John is very clear about the gospel. Even as we have these tests of obedience and love and doctrine, we, don't, we, don't, we aren't saved by our obedience or our love or our, our right theology. That's not how we're saved. These are all the, the fruit of being saved, if you will. So, so think about how we obtain eternal life. It's through faith alone. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ... You have been born of God. And it even goes further, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And what overcoming the world means is to, is to not love the world, but to walk in a, in a righteous way. It says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. What is it that overcomes the world? It's our faith that overcomes the world. It's not our power, our stamina, our goodness. It's the faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The only way you're going to overcome the world, the only way you're going to have this measure of righteousness in your life, this obedience or this love, is by believing and trusting in Christ, having Him um, change you, transform you, so you're a child of God, put God's seed in you, and so that you follow in these ways. But it's, it's all by faith, and, and John's clear about that. Chapter 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him and he in God. If you confess, it's just, it's just like Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. That, that's, that's the gospel right there. We don't obtain eternal life through obedience, but rather our obedience is the sign of our life. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You're just not going to be in the practice of sinning. Why? Because God's seed abides in him. There's something about God's seed in us, abiding in us, that we cannot stay in this camp. We're like oil and water. We, we, might, we might get in the water a little bit, but we're going to squirm out of the water. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. I cannot. I cannot go over there. You know, it's like a, a magnet that repels, right? The, the north, north, that I'm going to come close, it's going to push me away. I cannot be there. Because God is the one that pushes me away. And see, there, the, the, the obedience is a sign of life. If God's seed in you, it will keep you from practicing sin. And, and like we don't obtain salvation through our love. Our love is a response to his love. Chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. He loved us first. And so we love in response. And everything flows in that direction. Because when God's love is in you, you will love. You will love God. You will love others. You won't just say that you love others. Chapter 3, verse 18. Some of the most convicting verses in this whole past, in this whole book. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, let's not our love just be a talking sort of love. See, it's not, it's not that you say, I love you. It's that you show that you Love. See, love is very tangible. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, there's the question. How does God's love abide in him? So you see a brother, a fellow believer, if you will, in need. You have what they need. It's your possession. And your heart closes against them. How does God's love abide in you? It doesn't. It's not there. God's love will have an open heart, will have compassion on them, will, will, will spill out and be willing and ready to share. Be willing and ready to help because you love. This is shoe leather faith, right? This is good Samaritan faith. This is early church faith when they had, were selling their possessions and their belongings and their proceeds to all who had need. That's love. It's not some sentimental feeling. It's action. It's, it's demonstrating their love. And if you don't demonstrate love to the brothers, then you aren't loving them. And if you aren't loving them, you're in the dark. That's the idea of chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. I don't, I don't care what you say. It's a matter of what's happening and what's flushing out in your life. I mean, you can confess that you believe in Jesus all that you want. But if there's nothing in your life that demonstrates belief, all your claims are hot air. It's a message of 1 John. He goes around and around and around and around and around and around this. Love will be demonstrated by action. And how appropriate. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show what he's like. Right? He's like a, 
A man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood came, the string broke against that house. It could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. See, in other words, I do believe that the, the one will stand for life, to use John's metaphor, and the other will sweep away with the world because you're not following in Jesus' way. If you don't believe in Jesus and his love is not working through you, such will be your fall. You, you know, and just, I just think of the importance there of the church. Right, fellow believers in our lives. We need to have fellow believers we can exhibit and demonstrate this love. The, the lone Christian has got some problems when you come to First John. Because a lone Christian doesn't have others really to, to love. It's the importance of a church family. It's important of a greater Christian community. That we might show forth our love. Listen, my heart for all of you is you'd have eternal life. That, that you would believe. Let's look back at verse 4. Talk about 1, 2, and 3. Talked a lot about 1 John. Let's go to verse 4. And we'll start in verse 5 next week. But verse 4 says this. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now what a strange thing to say. The more logical thing, thing seems to say, and we write these things so that your joy may be complete. In fact, that's how the King James, the New King James translates it. Other translations have it, our joy. There's a textual issue. And I'm not here today to decide that. But both these sides are true. There's nothing untrue about either of them. But I, I simply say this. When you embrace First John, it will lead to your joy. It will lead to your great joy when you embrace these things and when you know that you have eternal life. And when you know what it means that you are a child of God, Paul, in, I'm sorry, John, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, is just like, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Hey, have you ever thought about what it means to be a child of God? God is our Father. We are His children every bit as much as you are children of your earthly father or mother. A child of the divine, sovereign, omnipotent one. He, we're His children. And, and what Paul is saying is saying, I'm sorry, John is saying just, what sort of love is this? This is like awesome love. And I say this, it ought to give you joy. You ought to just be thrilled with joy that you are a child of God. And not only today must your joy be there, but in the future, behold, we are God's children now. It's not just that we will be God's children someday. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. It, that's joy-giving stuff that, to, to know that I'm a child of God now and that when Christ returns, I'm going to be a child then. And I'm going to be like Jesus. You say, what's Jesus like? He's sinless. I'm going to be sin, sinless. The, the sin, oh, the blessed thought, that sin not in part but the whole was nailed to the cross, Colossians 2, verse 14. And it's not in part, the whole is, and, and I am with Christ and I'll be with him sinlessly reigning with Jesus, part of his kingdom forever. That, if that's not joy-giving, you don't have any taste of understanding what it means to be a child of God. There's joy in believing and trusting in First John, the message here, that you know that you have eternal life. If you know you have eternal life, you won't fear the punishment of judgment. Chapter 4, verse 17, By this is love perfected with us. 
so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Because there's no fear in love, perfect love casts out fear. For fear is to do with punishment. And the one who fears has not been perfected in love. But when you are perfected in love, you have no fear of any judgment because there's no condemnation in Christ. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as a propitiation for our sins. Chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. That means that He turned away the wrath of God. The wrath of God is no longer on us. We believe and trust in Him. And that's joy today, and that is joy in the future. But not only is 1 John 1, 4 true, we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. It's also true. I'm writing these things so that my joy may be complete. John is writing this. And what does he want more than anything else? He wants for his children to be walking in the truth. He wants the hearers this message to be walking in the truth. And it gives him great joy. A verse I've quoted often in terms of parenting. Parents, get this verse in your mind. Dig it deep. It's John, 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There's no greater joy a pastor has than when he knows of his people, his children, walking in the truth. There's, there's nothing. And, and I just know that, that my heart is John's heart. And as John writes to the young and the old and the strong, to help them walk in their ways before God, when they walk in God's ways, there's great joy in his heart, there's great joy in, in my heart. When, when I hear of steps of obedience that you all take, I'm like thrilled. When I hear of how you, you struggle with sin or you've turned away from sin, you've repented from things and you've walked right, I am thrilled. When I hear of how one person expressed love towards another person, I mean, we've had people give cars, we've had people give things and possessions and help and money and gifts and that's like what greater joy is there it's not i'm not benefiting at all but just you all loving one another now i especially love it when you give me things okay but but it's okay when you when you love others that's 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 my joy and it makes sense that john says we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete right when you put your faith on display and are bold for your faith and witness to somebody in a hard situation, my joy is great. And so church family, if for anything else, I say make me happy and walk in God's ways and thereby know that you have eternal life. That's the message of First John. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help put all these scattered thoughts together in our mind. God, I tried to preach like John preaches. God, help us to put them together and realize just the, the truth and the reality here that this is, this is good news. God, that this isn't some figment of our imagination. This is reality. That Jesus has come. He's a real man. He is God-man. He's come to atone for our sins, to remove your wrath from us. And you're working in us that we would love and obey and believe in a strong and powerful Christ. Oh, God. Work in us, I pray. I pray, Lord, that you would convince us of eternal life, that we might realize that there's nothing here on earth that we can lose, but we can live boldly for you. 
be our help and our shield and our guide in these months in which we're in First John. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.